0: If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word, and that will come from John chapter 1, this morning, John's Gospel, chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 13, and our text will be verses 6 through 13. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that even by Your Spirit, the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, that You would enlighten our minds and our hearts to the wonderful things in this section of Your Word and help us to apply them to our lives for Your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So the great stories often begin with a prologue. A prologue is a discourse or a poem that historically has been spoken before a drama or a play. And one such example would be John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you have read that, I know. Uh, But he begins at the beginning by writing this poem, and he basically tells us, how this came to be, this work, Pilgrim's Progress. Listen to what he says. When I at the first, I took my pen in hand, thus for to write, I did not understand, that I at all should make a little book in such a mode, nay, I had undertook, to make another which, when almost done, before I was aware, I this begun and thus it was, I riding of the way, a race of saints in this our gospel day, for suddenly into an allegory about their journey and the way to glory. I like poetry that rhymes myself, and I appreciate that work, but at the beginning you can see that Bunyan tells us what his work is about. It's about the Christian's journey to the way of glory, how one becomes a Christian and what that life is. So often looks like on this earth. Well, similarly, uh, this inspired account of the personal work, the life here on earth of the Lord Jesus Christ. John has given this to us and he's given us this prologue, his prologue, before he lays out for us these events in our Savior's life. And I think he's preparing us for the things that will come in his account. And in fact, some of these things, I think he tells us about them so that we're not caught off guard when we read about them a little later. And so he's preparing us for what will transpire and unfold in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you have your Bibles there, you can see in verses 6 through 13, he shines the light on John's ministry. He tells us about the purpose of John's ministry, he shines light upon Jesus' ministry. And I think at the end there in verse 13, he shines light upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Of all the persons of the Godhead, well, there are three. I think the Holy Spirit takes uh, the, um, the background approach. He works behind the scenes. Jesus even tells us that in John chapters 14 through 16. So let's begin by looking at John's ministry in verses six through nine. The Gospel writer, John, tells us about John's ministry, that is, his purpose, his mission that the Lord has given to him, why his ministry even existed at all. Before we talk about that, let me distinguish between John, the Gospel writer, and John, the one about whom the Gospel writer wrote. He's talking about John the Baptist, right? Perhaps you know that. And uh, this is before the Protestant Reformation, this was before uh, the Protestant denominations, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, and the like. And so all Christians should claim John the Baptist as one of the prophets of Christianity. Uh, he's called John the Baptist in Matthew 3:1, but in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 4, if we were to translate the Greek properly, it would, it would go something like this: John the one baptizing, or John, the baptizer. That's more accurate. And he was the one that came, and he preached a baptism of repentance, and the people flocked to him, confessing their sins, and uh, that was significant because that is precisely what he was called to do by God. At the end of the Old Testament, God about this messenger, John the Baptizer, or John the Baptist, who would come. And as he closed the Old Testament, we have the last book of that as Malachi in our Bibles. Um, Between Malachi and the arrival of John, there were 400 silent years, meaning that God did not speak through His prophets during that whole time. And in Isaiah uh, chapter 40, This is what we learn about John the Baptist who had come. It says in Isaiah 43, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places will be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so there we're told about John, who would make the way ready for the Lord. And in Malachi chapter 3, it says this at verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger. And by the way, Jesus in Matthew 11 says that this is talking about John the Baptist. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Of course, it goes on and says he will sit as a refiner at the refiner's fire. But notice there, the messenger will come. He's preparing the way for the Lord. And the Lord whom you seek, he himself will come to his temple. God is coming to his temple, Malachi 3 says. Before that happens, the messenger comes. And who is the messenger? John the Baptist. John the baptized herb, as we find in Scripture. And by the way, we're told there he comes in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. He did. He went on the outskirts of Palestine and so forth. And uh, that is significant. His the location of his ministry, and it's significant because it was in the wilderness that God appeared to Moses. It was in the wilderness that God delivered His law. To his people Israel. It is in the wilderness where he made covenant with his people Israel. And it would be in the wilderness where the future site of deliverance for God's people would be announced. Where the salvation would be proclaimed. And I think there's a message there about the wilderness. God is showing us that he's come to redeem us from the wilderness. That is this life on this earth. This earth is all very good. We've seen that. Genesis 1. However, it's been marred and cursed by sin, Genesis 3 tells us. And so things are not as they should be. And so there's the Savior to come, the Lord Jesus, this word about him John wrote, who would come and deliver us from this life, this fallen world, even our own sins. And so if you look at verse 6, it says there's a man sent from God. This is John. His name was John, John the Baptist. And just notice that he was sent by God. That means that his ministry has been ordained by God. That connects everything that he does in his ministry to the living and true God. It connects heaven and earth. That which will transpire. And so those who heard John should have seen John as the messenger from God. Proclaiming God's message. And that's important for us to remember Now. Jesus said something very great about John the Baptist. He said in Matthew's Gospel, um, of those born of women, there has not risen such a great man as John the Baptist. But he also says he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. And so I mention that because I want to say this. John the Baptist was a great prophet. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, really. And he was a man sent by God. And so in a day, in an age where authority is disrespected and undermined, where even churches and office and structure within the church of Jesus Christ is despised and disdained, we ought to remember that God does send men into this world to preach the gospel, to be pastors, to be elders, and to be deacons. There is church authority. And while church authority, as other offices, have been abused, let us not disrespect those who have been called genuinely and truly by God and to remember that God has sent them to minister to us. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, Christ has given gifts to men, pastors and teachers, and before them, apostles and prophets. And so... John, the gospel writer, tells us of the purpose of John's ministry. Verse 7, this man came for a witness, to be a martyr, not to die, although he would. But he came to be a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. And so he came to give testimony. He came to testify of the light. Now, who is the light? We looked at that last time. It's it's Jesus. It's Christ Jesus himself, the second person of the the Godhead who would come and take upon human flesh. And so he came, we are told there in verse 6, to bear witness of that light. And the reason he came to bear witness was to bring about a decision among men. It says, That all through him might believe. And so that is the, the end game of gospel preaching. That men would be forced to make a decision for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as a preacher, I need to remember that. Paul himself told the Corinthians, I came to you not to impress you. I'm paraphrasing. Not to impress you with my speech, my rhetorical devices, as was so um." popular among the Greeks. He said, no, I came and I knew nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He came to tell people about their sins and the way that God has provided and taken care of their sins if they would repent and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So He came to preach Christ. Jesus says in Luke 24, the Old Testament, they are the things which testify of me, John 5 says. In Luke 24, we're told that He explained and showed the disciples how The books of Moses testified of Himself. So, as we minister together, as you support the work of the church, as you serve in the way that God has called you and gifted you, let us not forget the ultimate goal is to be light in this dark world, to point to the light. That's what John was called to do, to be a witness. You know, I think of the moon. Did you see the moon? Was it Thursday night? That was awesome. It, I felt like I could reach out and grab it. It was so, it seemed to be so large and close. And as glorious as that is, it simply reflects the light of the sun. That's the moon's job. It gives us light in the darkness. Many times, not all the time. But John's ministry was like that it was to reflect God's glory back to him, specifically the sun's glory, S O N, Jesus' glory. That's what he's called us to do as well to bear witness to the light, to be the light of the world. Jesus says in uh, Matthew 5 and 6, when He talks about us being the light, He says you, in the Greek it's you, and you alone, you yourselves, are salt and the light of the earth and the world. Now in verse 8, Uh, The writer here says he was not that light. John was not that light. John was not Jesus, but was sent to bear witness of the light. Why would he say that? I don't know exactly, but there are commentators and scholars who, I mean, I think I do eventually, but as far as the historical context, um, there are those who would say that there was an early sect in the apostolic Christian church that claimed that John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, founded their church. And they venerated Him to the point, almost to the exclusion of Jesus Himself. And so John directs us here to the true light, who it is that we are to worship, not the prophets, not the apostles, not our pastors, not our favorite teachers, but the light. Verse 8, He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And so here we have a reminder not to put our trust in men. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 1. I am of Apollos. I am of Paul. I am of Jesus. You know, I have my, you know, I don't want to be crude, but, but people follow preachers. They're famous teachers. And my wife has kind of you know, nudged me a little bit jokingly said, I think when John MacArthur dies, you're probably going to fly to California, go to his funeral, because he was influential in my early Christian life. He's one reason I ended up where I am today. God used them, But I don't agree with everything he says. And I don't see him as my Savior. But there are cult leaders in churches who are very gifted by God, no doubt. And they abuse that at times. They have authority. People follow them. Some of you know too familiarly what I'm talking about. And they let you down. Because they're sinners. And we forget that. I'm a sinner. And I've seen that as well in other contexts. And so, he is not that light. Remember, that pastor, that preacher, he is not that light. But we're to point to that light. In verse 9, he repeats himself. I think this um, was intentional by John. It definitely was intentional by the Holy Spirit who spoke and wrote through John. That light was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. That takes us back to verses 4 and 5. And uh, I won't go into all of that, but the point is there's repetition, redundancy, and that's good because we are sometimes dull in hearing and understanding. And uh, Jesus is the one who gives life to all men. He's like the, uh, the light in Genesis 1 that came before the sun and gives life. He is the one who is the second person of the Godhead who is, along with the other persons of the Godhead, the creator and sustainer of life. And so we have the purpose of John's ministry here. Second, we have uh, this revelation of the reception of Jesus' ministry in verses 10 through 12. Um, in verse 10, there's a transition it moves from John to Jesus. It said he, he was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know Him. And so the Creator came into the world that He created, and His creatures who bore His image did not know Him. That's one of the cardinal doctrines of Christianity, is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God became man. Man. And yet the world did not know Him. They didn't know Him intimately. They did not acknowledge Him as God. They did not recognize Him as God. In Acts 13.27, when Paul is preaching there, he said this, For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know Him, nor even the voices and the prophets which were read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Because they did not know Jesus, they condemned Jesus. That's what happened. That's what John is telling us. You know, I, I, I sometimes go back to the King James, I memorize some verses, and so I love the way it puts it, "He came into his own and his own received him not. And why was that? Because they didn't know him. Jesus will say more about this in John 3:19. That men loved the darkness rather than the light. They didn't want their evil deeds exposed. And so it's because of their evil nature, their depravity. It's not unlike Isaiah 1 where God says the ox knows its owner and the ass its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. In Romans chapter 10, in the first four verses, Paul makes this astounding statement. Astounding, perhaps, because we don't want to think it's true. He talks about his prayer for Israel. He prays that Israel will be saved. Those who do not believe, and in his day, did not believe in the Savior. And so in Romans chapter 10, he says this, For I bear them witness, the Jewish people in his day that did not believe, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. In Romans, he's already talked about this righteousness, this foreign and alien and outside righteousness that comes to us through Jesus Christ that we receive after we hear about it in the gospel and we put our trust in him. We receive the righteousness of Christ. He says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It was their pride. They sought to establish their own righteousness and therefore they rejected the true righteousness from Christ that only could save them. And then he says, for Christ is the end of the law. The law came to expose our sins so that we would flee to Christ. And so you know what? You might not have grown up, and today in our society, men may not have grown up in Israel, you know, performing the sacrifices, going to temple worship, but maybe they grew up in the church. And they claim their church attendance. They claim that their mom or grandmom is a, Christian, and they grew up Christian. They didn't baptize, and they have done all these things, and so they rely upon that. That won't save you. Only the righteousness of Christ will save. You. Only Jesus Himself can wipe away all of your sins. And so that's why, for the most part, the Israelites in Jesus's day rejected Him. But that's not all that happened, even in the days of Jesus. He forecasts here what is going to happen as we will read on in John's Gospel. In verse 11, rather verse 12, let me go back to verse 11. It says, He came into His own, and His own did not receive Him. Then in verse 12 it says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. And so to receive Jesus is to believe in Jesus. To receive Christ is to put your faith in Christ. We talk about receiving Him and embracing Him as He is offered to us in the Gospel. Another term you might hear is appropriating Christ. That's what it means. What is true saving faith? There are three elements of true saving faith. Knowledge, assent, And trust. A lot of people have knowledge about Christ and they aren't saved. A lot of people have knowledge and dissent about Christ and they aren't saved. They say that Jesus really existed. Yeah, all that's true. What happened? But you have to have the third. That's trust. That means that you are not relying upon yourself. You're not relying upon anything or anyone else to save you but Jesus and Him alone. And so here, for those who have this saving faith... John tells us as many as did receive him. To them he gave the right, the authority, the privilege to become the children of God. This is talking about adoption. We've been adopted into God's family. To those who believe in his name. What does that mean? In his name. We don't talk about or talk that way today. That was an old way of Saying or speaking about the whole person. For instance, in Psalm 20, verse 1, it says, May the Lord answer you in the day of your trouble. May the name of the Lord, or the God of Jacob, defend you. So the name is equated with the person. So it means the person. And so for those who confess Christ, who repent of their sins, who put their trust in Him, And receive Him. To them He gives the right to become the children of God. Sons and daughters of the living God. Think about it. Before a person is adopted. Before you and I were adopted. Who believe in Jesus. This is what was true. And this is true for all non-Christians today. Hebrews 12 and verse 8 says. That such people who do not believe in Jesus, they're illegitimate sons. As the King James puts it, they're bastards. John chapter 8, Jesus told the Pharisees, you are are your father, the devil. And uh, Ephesians 2, 3, lest you're thinking, okay, I'm a Christian, I've always been his son. Well, Paul tells the Christians at Ephesus. He says, among whom also we all, he includes himself, We all conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. We were children of wrath. Jesus will say in John 3, for those who don't believe, the wrath of God abides upon him already. And so there really there is no such thing as the universal fatherhood of God. We're all God's children. Well, of course, unbelievers want to say that because they're still in their sins and they know in their heart of hearts they've sinned against God and they want an easy way out. You know, if I were not saved today, I would want that easy way out too. But if you're not in Christ, you're in danger. God's wrath is upon you. That's part of the gospel message. But then comes the gospel and we hear Christ through the gospel. We put our faith in Christ. And what happens? We become His son, His daughter. We become brothers and sisters in Christ. And just, you say, okay, that's, that's great. What does that mean for me? Here's just a few things from Scripture. Because we're adopted, we are joint heirs with Christ. Romans eight seventeen. We inherit the Canaan above Hebrews 4. we are given the spirit of adoption Romans 8.15 and it is by the spirit of adoption that we cry out Abba, Father, Daddy, Father that we have the ability to pray and takes our prayers and perfects them so that God the Father will hear them through the Son and so as Ephesians 2.18 says we have access to our Heavenly Father we have the privilege of prayer because we've been adopted into God's family God pities us as a loving father. Psalm 103, 13. God, our father, protects us. Proverbs 14, 26. He gives us everything we need. Jesus tells us, Matthew 6, 32. Our loving father disciplines us. Hebrews 12, 6. If you love your children, you will discipline them. Yes, lovingly, but you will discipline them. You see, the father wants us to be like Jesus. And he disciplines us. I... It was my practice to spank my children. Lovingly as the scripture commands me. I did it in faith. And sometimes I would tell my children, you know, son, daughter, this hurts me just as much as it hurts you. But you know what? Daddy gets spiritual spankings today as a grown man. Because the scripture says, as my Heavenly Father loves me, He disciplines and He chastises me. That's a good thing. Now, not beating, not abusing and all of that. He's a loving Heavenly Father. And He grants assurance to us that we are His by His Spirit, Romans 8, 16. And so we inherit eternal life, Matthew 19, 29. Those are just a few of the blessings of adoption. And if you had terrible parents, if you had terrible guardians and they abused you, you know, don't think that God is like that. God is holy and just He will by no means clear the guilty, and yet He sent His own Son that He might die in our place to bear the wrath that we deserve so that we might be delivered from hell forever. He adopts us into His family. He takes care of us. He loves us and He provides for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so we have the purpose of John's ministry. We have the reception of Jesus' ministry. And then I think there in verse 13, John hints at the Spirit's ministry. So it says there in verse 13, about those who believe in His name, who are born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so here we have the answer to the question, what is the determining factor between those who did not believe in His name and those who did. What is it? They who believe were born of God. And so in verse 13, we have the teaching of the new birth. That doctrine we call regeneration. Generation is to be made. Regeneration is to be made again, to be born again, to be generated again. And so he says, not, he's emphasizing here, it wasn't for these reasons, not those born of blood. What does that mean? Probably it refers to their pedigree, their family, their lineage. You know, this is a problem for the Jews. Um, We have as our father, Abraham, no you don't, your father is the devil, Uh, but we have, uh, you know, we're of this tribe, we're of this clan, and our family has this land, and We've been in the church for ages. Nope. Membership in the visible church does not save us. Then he says those who are born of the flesh, it wasn't because of that, nor the will or the lust and the Greek of the flesh. It wasn't because of your birth, nor the will of man. It wasn't because of your own effort. And so as I thought about it, an easy way perhaps to understand this is to read it like this. There were those who were born, not of man, not of man, not of man, but of God. What's the point? He's contrasting the physical birth with the spiritual birth. Some of you have heard of Jay Gresham Machin. He was one of the founders of the denomination we're in. In the 30s, he wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. He wrote an article about the origin of Paul's religion as well. And in those places, he talks about the fact that liberalism and Christianity are two different things. They're mutually exclusive. Christianity is not liberalism. Liberalism is not Christianity. See, the liberals in his day, they wanted to rescue Christianity from science Because after all, evolution is true. After all, it must be true that the miracles didn't happen. Jesus was not God and man and didn't raise people from the dead. The resurrection didn't happen. All of that stuff can't be true because it's science. And so Christianity then is just this basic core of do's and don'ts and the teachings of the good teacher, Jesus. Matron said, that's hogwash. And hopefully you say, that's hogwash. Because that's only naturalism. He came along and he reminded Christians, that Christianity is a supernatural religion. Jesus is a supernatural person that brings a supernatural salvation. What is John telling us? That these who had faith, had faith because they were born of God, because they were born again, because they were regenerated. And therefore, we have to understand that our salvation is not because of anything that we have done or could ever do. Our salvation is due to God and it is due to God alone. That's one in the front of our bulletin. We have one of the solas of the Protestant Reformation. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Not to me and God. We got this thing going on. No. In John 3, 5, Jesus said, unless one is born again, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot see, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In Ephesians 2, 1, Paul says to Christians, and you he made alive who were dead in sins and trespasses. I was spiritually dead before I had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I wasn't a cripple. I was in my coffin spiritually. You could have preached to me. You could have begged me to come to Jesus. You could have warned me about hell, but I was dead. Titus 3 5, it says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And this grace, this adoption, Ephesians 1 5 says, is the sovereign predetermining plan of God. It's all by God's grace. Many are called, Jesus said, few are chosen. The gospel goes out. We call people in. Who are the ones that come in? Those who are chosen. The elect. And so as we think about all of this, for those who struggle with pride, or maybe you're prideful and you just don't know it, it's a blind spot. It's so glaring you don't see it. It extends out before you. Maybe you think, well, I'm actually, I'm a pretty good person. But what does the Bible say in Genesis 6-5? God looked out upon the sons of men, and He saw that the thoughts and intents of men's hearts were only evil continually. That's pretty thorough. It's pretty redundant. Um, maybe you say, I had, a, I had a good heart. In Jeremiah seventeen nine, it says, the heart is... Desperately wicked. It is deceitful. Who can know it? And maybe someone would say, I'm a spiritual person. You know, I I do yoga. And when I do, I meditate and I feel one with God and the universe, whatever. No. Spiritually, you're dead. You cannot raise yourself from the dead. And every sin deserves god's wrath and curse you know i worked with a guy who i was at a company in transition it's kind of i don't want to badmouth a company i'm dealing with now i won't tell you what it is but they're going through a tra- they were acquired they're they, 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 um, they're going through a transition and the service is horrendous and i feel it for the people who work there because people like me are calling saying why haven't you done this why i've already paid for this why i worked for a company that went through that and this one guy who's like you know, i just got to tell a little white lie every now and then. Well, i got to tell you, a little white lie deserves God's wrath and curse. And so we who are Christians, we don't come to the table, we don't come to worship thinking that we are better than the common man. The non-Christian even. No. We recognize this. We own this. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We deserve God's wrath and curse. And so what we see here in verse 13 is that we are reminded that we ought to be a humble people. That the true Gospel produces in our hearts humility. And when the Gospel is preached clearly, And faithfully to the Scriptures, it produces humility in the hearts of God's people. Because we say, God, why me? Why did you choose me? I deserve hell, but you put my curse upon Jesus. And then it leads us to praise and worship. What is it that leads us to worship God as He has called us to worship? What is it that leads us to true Christian joy? It's the gospel. It's the fact that I deserved all these things, that I was helpless, that I was dead in my sins and trespasses. But God, by His grace, has saved me. He's given me new life. I put my faith in Jesus. I seek to follow Him, I hope, every day. And when I don't, He comes to get me and pulls me back. And so that leads me to true Christian worship. True theology, even true soteriology, the doctrine of man and sin and grace as well, leads me to worship the living and true God. I think we have it backwards in our modern day church context. We think music is going to. Sorry, I don't need to. You know, maybe I'll play the drums, okay? Whatever. Um, that we think music is going to stir us and lead us to worship. And it will tug at our emotions. It's a gift of God. It does put us in various moods. But it's only theology, it's only the gospel that leads us truly to worship the living and true God. And so. As we think about this, as we love God because He first loved us, and as we move through John's Gospel, we'll see that there will be those who reject Jesus' message, just as there are those who have received or rejected Jesus' message today. There will be those who receive His message, as there are those who receive His message today. And then where does all the credit go? To God, living and true God. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering, well, how do I know if I'm really a son or daughter of the living God? Because you hear what I'm talking about and you wonder, you know, you talk about this chosen stuff before the foundation of the world. Well, look at verse 12 again. But as many as receive Him To them He gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in His name. Do you believe? Do you trust in Jesus to save you? Do you trust in Jesus alone to save you from your sins? If you do, you are a child, a son, or a daughter of the living God. Amen? Let's pray. Our glorious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not only just and holy, but you are full of grace, you are merciful, and that your sovereign Spirit has taken the work of Christ and applied that to us. He's made that a reality in our lives who trust in you. And so we pray. That You would work in our hearts humility, thanksgiving, worship, and love for You. For we say, all the glory goes to You. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen.